Welcome to Obiter Dicta, a podcast by Bloomsbury Professional Ireland, hosted by Rachel Sherlock and Owen Malloy. Each episode, we interview one of Ireland's leading legal professionals on their areas of interest and expertise and how these are informing our current headlines. We also deliver a summary of Bloomsbury Professional Ireland's latest updates across its online services and blog. Thanks for listening and we hope you enjoy our podcast. Hello and welcome to Oberto Dicta, Bloomsbury Professional Ireland's podcast. For our first episode, joining myself and own is Mark Tottenham. So Mark, your new book, A Guide to Expert Witness Evidence, comes out at the end of September. If you could just please start by maybe giving us a brief overview of yourself, your work and what areas you practice in. Well, I'm a barrister in practice in Dublin and on the southeastern circuit. I've been in practice for 17 years. I've got a general practice, largely from having practiced in, on the circuit, you tend to find that you get a taste of a wide variety of areas of law. To the extent that I specialise, it's mainly in the areas of kind of property, conveyancing, landlord and tenants, that kind of thing, and probate. I'm a trust and estate practitioner. Um, I'm also a mediator, and I do quite a bit of mediation at this stage. So 17 years at the bar. Did you have any other jobs before you became a barrister, and did you consider going down the solicitor route at all, or...? Um, I had a number of different jobs before being a barrister. I sat in your shoes and I worked in a, for a publishing house in London for three years. And then I was at Arnold, part of the Hotter Headline Division. Then I went and worked in India for a while for a charity. Then I started studying law when I was 28. And because the King's Inns is a four-year part-time course, or it was then, I, I worked as a genealogist and historical researcher for a few years during that. And I've been a full-time barrister since 2002. That's really fascinating to have such a varied background. <laughs> in some ways. Uh, would you have any advice for university graduates embarking on their journey towards becoming a lawyer? Uh, well, I think a lot of people like me are sort of arts graduates who then kind of moved in, into law, which is, is interesting. But I think, I suppose, when you're asked to give this advice, you tend to look at the things that you don't have or that you didn't do. And certainly, I think uh, it's good technical specialist knowledge is very useful and if you don't already have that by way of being a scientist or engineer I think it's probably quite good to um, to develop a particular legal speciality I mean I would have thought it's a, it would be very useful to do the tax exams for example or to become a specialist in certain areas of financial um, sort of accountancy um, tax interest that kind of thing you know that that would give you an edge over a lot of your contemporaries. That's really interesting was there any connection between your kind of interest in specialisation and what led you to write about expert witness? Uh, not in particular. I mean, I, I was asked by Bloomsbury to, to work on this book, which obviously it's, uh, it's something I suppose, now you mentioned it, probably has slightly affected my, my view of it. Yeah. And I suppose the tax exams you mentioned, would they be more for solicitors or are they equally beneficial to barristers? Because I've mainly heard people recommending solicitors to do their tax exams, for example. Well, because I haven't done them. I, I, I yeah. can't speak position of particular knowledge, but uh, but certainly I think if you're a tax specialist, they will always be worth you as a barrister. Okay, perfect. And I suppose we, we'll move into the book now. I yeah, think. sounds um, great. So the book, it, it's very, very interesting read. Um, totals around, is it 440 pages or so? Around that, I think. So I suppose if you could just start by maybe giving us a brief overview of the book, I think you're in a better place than us to do that. Well, as far as I know, it's the first book specifically on expert evidence in Ireland. Um, obviously, it's covered in other books and evidence, but um, I think the I think that the, really what you could say the premise of the book is that there are that there's a an extent to which a lot of experts don't understand their role in the court process, um, 
and I think that the, the, the way to explain it is, is probably best summed up by looking at the way experts or you know professionals approach other work. You tend to go in thinking, well, my job here is to help my client. Um, when you go into a court process as an expert witness, your first duty is to the court and not your client. Um, your position is very different from that of a lawyer. You're not there to help your client win the case. You're not there to marshal the facts in such a way as to assist your client. You're not there to kind of give a slant on your expertise. The courts in almost every common law jurisdiction, including Ireland, have consistently said your job as an expert is to be objective and not to assist your client. And there's no libel to say that that's widely misunderstood because the, the case law bears it out. A large proportion of the case law in almost every country on expert evidence says the expert in this case has not understood that their duty is to the court and not to the client in, in so many words. And I suppose that leads us into our next point, because in chapter five of your book, you discuss the issue of communication between the expert witness and the legal professional who has engaged them. So I suppose if the expert witness maybe doesn't understand their remit and their the need for objectivity, is it incumbent then on the legal professional or the barrister in question to maybe, for want of a better word, train that into them? I think that's what the what the case law says. And again, I think it's no, no exaggeration to say that the legal teams can be as guilty as the experts in terms of, of not ensuring that objectivity is observed. The case law in a lot of cases where you get experts with widely varying opinions can only suggest that if the legal teams were a little bit more on the ball, they would ensure that some of these opinions weren't, didn't get as far as being given in open court. The, I mean, there's case law certainly in Ireland on the extent to which you can coach or train your witness before a case. It's just as Charlton um, adopted the dictum in a case called R.V. Mamadou, where they said, you mustn't train or coach your witness in the context of an individual case in terms of saying what there's to say. What you can do is explain the court process, explain how to answer questions. You can familiarise your, wit your witness with the way in which questions are asked and answered. But what you mustn't do in any sense is try to lead them to give a particular answer to a particular question. So I suppose then the answer to the question then of whether counsel can assist in drafting the, the report, it's excluding the conclusion. Basically. Yeah, I, I mean, that's, it's a, that's an interesting question because it's something that doesn't seem to have been addressed directly either in the case law in Ireland or in the UK, but there is case law in both Australia and Canada on it. They approach it from two completely different angles. The Australian case, the leading case there is a case called Harrington Smith and the government of Western Australia, I think it's called. And that's a case where there were, I think, 15 witnesses on each side, each with 30 reports. And what the judge said in that case is that the role of the lawyers should have been to effectively knock those reports into shape so that they didn't go in not observing the rules of evidence um, and including sort of opinion that, that wasn't admissible. Canadian case law comes approaches it from a completely different angle because this is a case called Moore and Gettahan. In the High Court, the trial judge effectively dismissed uh, or ruled inadmissible an expert report where there was evidence that the council had had an involvement in drafting it. When that was appealed, I think both the Canadian legal profession and a number of other professional bodies intervened. They made submissions on the appeal and the appeal court made it absolutely clear that it was open to counsel to assist in the redrafting of expert reports, provided that they didn't tamper with the actual conclusions of the experts themselves. So both Canada and Australia effectively agree on that. And I think it's fair to say that if the issue were to be addressed in Ireland, that, that they're both quite persuasive. Okay, that's really very interesting. Definitely. So I, I suppose the role of an expert witness is, is quite a serious one, not to be taken lightly. Sure. So 
Is there a general framework of duties that have been laid out maybe in, in a case? or In the UK, the case that most people refer to is one called the Icarian Reefer. It's a, an interesting case because it involved the scuttling of a ship somewhere, I think, off the coast of Cyprus, somewhere, I think, in the Mediterranean. It's quite a and, glamorous setting for it. <laughs> yeah, well, what, what happened was the ship went uh, aground and then it went on fire. And they claimed against their insurance company saying that this had been accidental. And the insurance company smelt a rat and concluded, based on certain surrounding evidence, that, that the ship had been scuttled. Am I right to say that a tap had been left on? Or I think a gas tap had been left on. Anyway, there were certain things that were very difficult to explain if it was an, an honest grounding, shall we say. In the High Court, the trial judge, when approaching the issue of expert evidence, gathered together a number of the different sort of dicta that had been made over the years in various different cases and put together a list, quite, quite a useful list of duties, but he didn't in any way suggest that it was comprehensive or authoritative. Now, the, the curious thing was that he found in favour of the owners of the ship and upheld the insurance contract. When that went to a, on appeal, the Court of Appeal actually overturned that and said that he'd made com completely the wrong inferences from the expert evidence that had been given. They did more or less, in fact, they, they, they did approve his list of, of duties of the expert. But I still think that there's a difficulty in adopting it as any kind of comprehensive list. I mean, each individual duty that he lists is perfectly valid, but it's not structured and it's, it certainly shouldn't be looked at as comprehensive. Has it been endorsed in Ireland, that list? It has been mentioned in a number of cases. It was effectively endorsed by in the High Court quite recently, and I can't remember the name of the case, I'm sorry to say. And then in a much more recent case in the Supreme Court, Mr. Justice McMenamin passing reference to it and said, as I've just said, that it, it's not authoritative or comprehensive, but it's, it's a useful list, effectively. I think you may have said it in more judicial terms than that. I think we've done our best in the book to, to set out a, a slightly more structured view of the, the, the duties of the expert, down to basic things like the expert witness has a duty to tell the truth. They have a duty to uh, investigate and ascertain the facts that they're basing their reports on, those sort of things, which uh, they may be more press principles, but it's not adopted in the same way in the Acarian Reefer. Of course. So you mentioned there that they have a duty to maybe collect and evaluate information, primary information, sure. and draw what you would call in your book a reasoned conclusion from yeah. that. So is there scope for what you might call opinion evidence? Because, I mean, to lay people like myself and Rachel, a medical diagnosis might seem like opinion evidence. Is that fair to say? Yeah, an expert is absolutely entitled to be opinion evidence in court. However, it's been, again, it's been made clear in a number of different cases that they don't have carte blanche to give whatever opinion they like. They're supposed to. I think, I think the best way of saying it is that it's the job of the expert to move from a position of conjecture to a position of inference. So if you have a number of different theories that could ground a, a, an explanation for, say, an illness or a building defect, the job of the expert is to try and move from a position of going, well, it could be one of three or four different explanations to the most likely explanation. And so and the danger is, of course, that you get two different experts and one says, oh, it's absolutely clear that the defect is the fault of the defendant. And the defendant's expert goes in and says it's absolutely clear that it isn't. And really the job of both of them from all of the case law is to establish what the cause of the defect is. And if it transpires to be the fault of the defendant, well, then the, the logical consequences follow. I suppose one, one other thing that arises from that, is there a method that the courts might employ to evaluate uh, conflicting 
expert witness evidence reports? Well, not in any way that's different from any other witness, should we say. I mean, okay. You'll very often find, obviously, there are witnesses who give conflicting evidence, and it's up to the court to look at, as far as possible, uh, there's a phrase that um, just Hardman used a few times, the islands of fact, you know, which witness is giving evidence that's most consistent with the things that you can identify as being true. And I think the when it comes to expert evidence, clearly you need to look at the underlying facts and establish which of them is approaching them from a more honest and more reliable point of view. So yeah, like in evaluating the different reports in the Icarian Reefer, initially the trial judge would have decided based on the expert witness evidence put forward by the ship owners that it was an accident. So is that correct? Yes. I think the, the way the trial judge approached this in that case, as far as I remember, is he said that, uh, that to find for the, for the insurance company was effectively a finding of fraud. Now, the courts have always approached fraud from a slightly difficult point of view because they say, well, the proof is still in the balance of probabilities, but you do need to have very reliable evidence to make a finding of fraud. The trial judge in that case, I think, felt that he couldn't, the evidence wasn't sufficient to come to the conclusion that the ship must have been scuttled. And because he wasn't that sufficiently sure, he, he said, well, I have to find for the plaintiffs in this particular case. The Court of Appeal reviewed all of the evidence and said that he effectively had, on every point at issue, he had found for the plaintiff's witnesses and against the defendant's witnesses in circumstances where it really wasn't tenable. And so they found for the insurance company. And then I think at the end of your book, we have reproduced an essay by the late Justice Adrian Hardyman. That's correct. Yeah. And that was a very interesting read. Yeah, it was published in a book from 1999, which was on expert evidence, but it was very much of its time. It has a short chapters by a number of different people on the kind of evidence that could be given in particular specialist fields. The essay by Mr. Justice Hardiman really stood out. He wrote it when he was still senior counsel very shortly before he was appointed to the Supreme Court. And it's just such a an interesting insight into his own approach to cross-examination, to the role of an expert witness. I certainly felt that if we were trying to publish a definitive guide to expert evidence, which is what we're trying to do, that that essay would really improve it. And the book that it was published in has been out of print for a very long time. So I, I, I felt that yeah, that essay really deserved a wider audience. Yeah, yeah. it's brilliant that we've got to reproduce that. Yeah, it's a wonderful yeah. opportunity. And, and I suppose I should acknowledge again that the editor of the original book, Bart Daly, and the family of Adrian Hardman have both uh, given their support to which while including it. Wonderful. I suppose just in conclusion, a final question. Was there anything particularly surprising or interesting that you came across in your research? Was there any one thing that, that stuck out? Well, it was interesting, I suppose, to look at the case law from other common law jurisdictions, particularly, I suppose, the Canadian case law on expert evidence. They have a much more sceptical view of expert evidence there. It really, it's really borne out in their case law. They treat expert evidence as positively dangerous, that, that, <laughs> that you don't adduce expert evidence unless you absolutely have to. If you do adduce expert evidence, you need to show a good reason for it. You need to make sure that it's properly grounded. You don't adduce it lightly. Whereas the, the approach in the UK is much more, should we say, discretionary on the part of the trial judge. Now, in fact, when you dig down and you look at the results of when expert evidence is adduced and when it isn't adduced, you'll actually find that the difference isn't that great. Mm. But certainly the overall tenor of the, the case law from Canada is, is much more cautious in terms of expert evidence. Okay, wow, that's really, really interesting. Thank you. So to sign off then, a guide to expert witness evidence by Mark Tottenham, Emma Jane Prendergast, Kieran Joyce and Hugh Madden will be available for purchase at the end of September. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you.
And now, a roundup of some of the updates which have been added to our online services over the past few weeks. These online services provide digital access to our books, updates, precedents and case notes, and are available as practice area subscriptions. On Monday, the 11th of September, the latest edition of our Irish Employment Law Update went live. In this update, Barrister Tara Murphy takes us through three recent cases relating to fixed-term contracts, employment equality and interlocutory injunctions in an employment context, respectively. On Friday the 13th of September, issue 91 of Professor John Wiley's Irish Property Law Update went live for online subscribers. This comprehensive update contains case notes and commentary on a wide range of issues affecting conveyancing practitioners in Ireland, from the drafting of construction of deeds, through the recent decisions on the ability of landlords to recover rents from tenants who remain in occupation following service of a forfeiture notice. And staying with conveyancing, the latest issue of our Irish conveyancing precedents went live on the 2nd of September. This update takes stock of the Residential Tenancies Amendment Act 2019, which was enacted in May of this year. In addition to updating the actual precedents themselves, subscribers have been provided with a key guide to the changes brought about by the Act. Family law practitioners should also note that Keith Walsh's new title, Divorce and Judicial Separation Proceedings in the Circuit Court, A Guide to Order 59, has been added to our Irish Civil Litigation Service at no extra cost to existing subscribers. And lastly, there were eight recent Irish case notes added to the new and noteworthy section of our website over the past month, covering a broad range of topics from planning law through to immigration and asylum cases. For more information on our online services or Mark's book, go to www.bloomsburyprofessionalireland.com. And that's it for our first ever podcast. Thank you for listening. Thank you. This has been Oberta Dicta, a Bloomsbury Professional Ireland podcast. To find out more about our titles and online services, visit bloomsburyprofessionalireland.com. You can follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook. Thanks for listening.